0: Open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 3. Welcome to everyone joining us online as well. We're entering into the Lenten season under the question of who am I in a journey of identity formation over these weeks ahead. To get us into the subject, if you haven't already pulled out your notes and the bulletin you were handed, or you can get them via the app. And online, your online host can get them for you there as well. I've got several what I thought were very helpful quotes. Thomas Merton says, he wrote this in the 1950s, there is only one problem on which all my existence, my peace, and my happiness depend. To discover myself in discovering God. If I find Him, I will find myself. And if I find my true self, I will find him. Go back several hundred years, Augustine, the well-known Catholic theologian, said this in the late fourth century. Yes, fourth century, Augustine said this, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. Unless you think this is just kind of a mystical Catholic-type discussion, John Calvin, who could be the poster child for the Protestant Reformation, in the opening line of what's considered his magnum opus, Christian Institutes, right? So the opening line, he wrote this in the 1500s. He said, "...nearly all wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves." And then Jesus in Matthew 16, as Jesus can do so well, summarizes all of it in one sentence For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So from Calvin to Augustine to Merton to Jesus, we've got this thread that's been pulled through the spiritual life from the time Jesus was walking the earth. Here's the thread, and here's going to be our journey through the Lenten season, that there is this intersection between self-knowledge and spiritual growth, between self-discovery and godliness between a journey of self-awareness and our spiritual formation. They're not two uh, disconnected subjects. A journey of understanding yourself well and getting to know God well. There's an overlapping reality that's often kind of misunderstood, misdiagnosed, and set aside in church circles. And so we're going to try to drag it back out into the centerpiece of this time of year. Now, As I step into this, I don't want you to think this is kind of the, this is not in the conversation today, right? How many different celebrity interviews do you see where somewhere in the interview, they ask the celebrity, well, how have they kind of arrived at this amazing life that they're claiming to live? And somewhere they say, well, just learn to be true to myself. Have you heard that? Or some latest Oprah-esque talk show that's got somebody up there and they're doing some interview and the conclusion of the long discussion is, well, I've just learned to be true to myself and they pan the audience and everybody in the audience is, oh yeah, it's true to myself. See, or some of you listen to lots of self-help books and some of them are super helpful in that, but how many of them conclude somewhere along the way in the top 10 rays, somewhere in number four, five, or six is be true to yourself? Now, here's the issue with all of that. The issue with the statement, be true to yourself, it presupposes you have a good understanding of the self to be true to. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of a mixed bag of selves. I'm like a little family of selves in here. There's like a little committee meeting of selves in here. Ask my family. They get to live with all of them. Or the staff that I get to work with. You get to work with all of them, right? There's the self that uh, there's the self that kind of lives in perpetual disappointment as an Enneagram one. So if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, the ones are like the perfectionists and the reformers is kind of a nicer term for it. But the reality is most of us ones go to bed at night with a perpetual disappointment that it was just never enough. It wasn't good enough. I wasn't enough for that day. I wasn't enough for that meeting. Uh, The message wasn't good enough. The leadership wasn't good enough. My parenting isn't good enough. My role as a husband isn't good enough. I can just live in this self of perpetual disappointment. Or or there's another self within me that kind of lives in the past of like all the failures and all the poor decisions and regrets. Oh, if I could have just done that over, if I could have just made that decision differently. And I just kind of live tethered to my past and my past mistakes mostly but also I could live in my passive, there's another self inside of me that's kind of tied to accomplishment and achievement and just feeling value and worth around performance and accomplishment. That's a whole nother self. And then, there, then there's this self that I'm kind of always striving to grab a hold of a life that just feels like it's just beyond my reach. Anybody been there where you just like, I just can't quite get a hold of it. And then in the midst of that like whole community of selves, inside of me, there's this true self that the Bible calls that God has created and called me to be, in the language of Colossians 3 that's hidden with Christ in God, my true self, in the midst of all that family of selves. And so into that space, we're going to allow Jesus to be our guide. And here's kind of the opening invitation on this journey of if you want to really, in the language of our culture today, be true to yourself, if you really want a good understanding of yourself, here's Jesus, like first step down that road. Die to self to find yourself. Boy, you're not hearing that on a lot of talk shows, huh? Let's bring Jesus of Nazareth to the stage. Let's have him, discuss. be true to yourself. Can you see? Well, actually, I think the first step for us is to die to ourselves. And then there's no head nodding. They pan the audience just flat-faced. In the denying of yourself, in the dying to yourself, Jesus would say, you actually discover your true self, which is created and hidden with Christ in God. That's the journey to, like, self-knowledge, which which interplays into our discipleship. And I like what uh, Pete Scazzaro, he says about this. I put this quote in your notes. Pete Scazzaro is a pastor out in Queens, New York. He said, the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. Think about that statement. The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. My prayer is that this series can at least stem the tide a bit on that. We unconsciously live someone else's life, or at least someone else's expectations of us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. And so, church, as we step into the Lenten season, which we began on Ash Wednesday, I want us to go on a walk with Jesus down a road labeled, who am I? And He's going to be our guide. And today, the first step on the road, I worded this way and placed in your notes, it's this. Your identity is received from beyond you, not created by you. And we're going to get into Matthew 3 in just a minute, but I just want to kind of let you internalize that, right? It's a received from beyond you, not created by you. So the first step in identity formation is to come to grips with this. We can't, in our own wisdom and strength, this is not an I, me, and self project, Like, my life is not my project. That's like the first step in identity formation, which is at the core of the sinful nature. All the way back to Genesis 3 is us saying to God, God, I appreciate how you want to be involved with my prop, but I'm going to take my project called my life, and I'm going to spiritual Heisman you, and I'm going to go about it my way. And right there, right there, this is why the language of Jesus you often hear when you read Jesus in the Gospels. Why does he often say to his followers, hey, come deny yourself? What? Take up your cross? What? Lose your life? Matthew 16. What? What is that? That's this. That's this where Jesus is saying the first step of answering the question, who am I, is a step of relinquishment, of surrender of yielding. Of what? Of yielding what? Of yielding the strong pull inside of us to make my life my project. To define myself and create myself and decide for myself and chart my own course and go my own way. I mean, how many graduation ceremonies have you all sat through? Where every graduation ceremony, at some point, there are two things communicated at every graduation ceremony, right? Somewhere in the speeches, and there's a lot of good things that happen to graduation ceremonies. There's just two that cause me to go, oh, all the things inside of me go, oh, no. Like, the first one is when someone stands up and says to the younger generation, just leave this graduation ceremony and walk through those doors and go be whoever you want to be. Oh, Lord. That sounds so nice. It's just not true. That's not how it works. The other thing that's said is go and like, everyone in here needs to be a leader. And you think, oh no, there's a whole bunch of folk in here that don't need to be leaders. (laughs) Are you with me? Not everybody can be a leader because a whole bunch of people step into leadership positions with all the wrong motivations. They shouldn't be leading anything. The first thing you gotta learn to lead is yourself, the hardest thing to lead is yourself. And so those two things, right, at every graduation speech, just go and, and do whatever you want to do and be whoever you want to be. And, and I couldn't help but think about uh, students, the generation that's coming up and having students in my own home and having conversations around our, our own table over the years and just, and just thinking about the pressure that's placed upon you that in middle school, you're supposed to chart your own life course. By high school, you've got to have your vocational plan clarified. And then you've got to have your college degree and your college choice and your college plan all mapped out simultaneously with keep the SATs and the ACT scores jacked up, keep them going up and to the right. The combination of all that pressure starting as early as fifth grade. I started thinking about what was I doing in fifth grade? We didn't even have a guidance counselor in fifth grade. In my school, the guidance counselor was code for the disciplinarian. The only time you landed in the guidance counselor is when you stuck your tongue on a pole frozen on the recess grounds. And you had to rip your tongue off the pole. Not saying it's from experience, but just imagine. You ended up in the guidance counselor's office. Not to have a conversation about your vocational plan in middle school. Do you feel this? Students, I empathize with you, and I think there ought to be today, those of you in leadership, those of us in leadership in some capacity, I think there's some flashing lights on the dashboard of our educational processes when that might be indicating we might be off track here a little bit when we have to insert mental health days. I heard about this recently at my own table Our own school system is going to insert mental health days and mental health weeks. Next year, it's going to turn from a day to a week. I thought, we ought to be having some conversations about what is it about the environment, what is it about that, that's causing, right, a generation? Is there any wonder that stress and anxiety disorders are off the charts with the generation coming up? Could it be what Dallas Willard says? Dallas Willard said this, follow this. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. I'm going to say that again because that went right over some of you right there. That might explain your weekend. I just need to say it again here, okay? Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. And could it be that we're raising up a generation of young people who are running into the reality that you can't form and create and define and set your own identity. At the core of it, you're trying to manufacture something that's to be received from beyond you. Could it be? Could it be the invitation? Could it be that Merton's right? That the invitation to peace? What are you going to do with the stress and anxiety levels? Right? mental health weeks are not going to solve the stress and anxiety levels there's a deeper more deeply rooted issue here I would argue it's rooted right here what we're getting into it's got to be anchored in this realm who are you and who decides who you are in our mostly hyper individualistic mostly secular increasingly post Christian western achievement society the centering reality of who answers the question who am I is me And I would argue, Jesus would step forward in that stage and say, that's the the reason we're in the language of the front half of Matthew 16. It's the way your life kind of then falls through your hand like grains of sand. The life you're striving to define and striving to achieve and striving to accomplish, it just, you lose it. And the first step into it is actually coming to grips with that relinquishment, that it's not mine to set. It's received from beyond me, not created from within me. And it really started with Jesus. That's why I have us in Matthew 3 today. Look at Matthew 3, the passage I had you turn to, verse 13. Which, by the way, wasn't our baptism service last week? How great was this? This is Jesus' baptism. How great was our baptism service last week? How about another round of applause for the 20 who went into the waters? It was amazing. If you haven't flipped through the pics yet, go to eaglechurch.com slash baptism. Jess Strickland, as usual, just killed it with the photography and capturing the moments and just so many I talked to one who was baptized who had kind of a tough day or a tough few hours, and and she just went back and watched her own baptism again. Isn't that awesome? Just replay it. Just keep replaying it. And just keep watching it. And keep being grounded in it. Because it's a visual of actually what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16. Like, there's so many pictures that Jess captured under the waters, right? The under the waters companionship with Jesus there is the relinquishment, is the release. You're letting go. You're saying, you know what? My ways, myself, old ways, old self, old life, release. And then up out of the waters, embrace. Isn't that a great picture? I love when you see it portrayed that way. And I came across a a book called Successful Aging because I'm 50 now. I I come across books like that. So, (laughs) Successful Aging, a neuroscientist, Dr. Daniel Levitin, he did a bunch of research on the aging process and he took all of these folks that he was doing this work on, and he had one question that really stood out to him. He asked them to identify. These folks had lived several decades of life. He asked them to identify what age would they point to as the happiest in their life. You want to guess what it was? The happiest. Hmm? Five. five. Yeah, somebody said five down here. The number one answer, 82. Relax, everybody. (laughs) Relax. You still got opportunities to experience. I suspect, although I didn't do a lot of digging in it, I suspect that a big part of why someone would say at 82 was their happiest moment in their life, I suspect it's putting their hands on Matthew 16 25. You see, when you're younger, when you're in your teens, 20s, 30s, even 40s, like the first 40 years of your life, you're pretty well convinced you can kind of make a way and and figure it out and do it on your own and kind of define yourself and kind of carve out your own life and be your own person. By the time you get to 82, you've long since concluded this. You're not nearly as in control as you think you are, and you're not nearly as good at it as you thought you were. That's what I suspect. That's why I love The gift it is, the elderly population to the body of Christ. I love spending time with people in their 70s, 80s, and plus. They're a wonderful gift to the body of Christ. Why? Because there's just such an unfiltered view often to their true selves. It's beautiful. They've sifted through all this stuff that we're going to be talking about over these weeks ahead. It's just kind of life, the cumulative effect of life, it just kind of knocked it out of you, and you're just kind of seeing like, Death has a way, the ending of your physical life has a way of kind of forcing relinquishment. What I'm lobbying for is, could we like before 82, perhaps, get a hold of a few of those things? And then let's leverage. This is why I love the intergenerational ministry of Eagle Church. I want all of you to know who are 70, 80 plus around here, you are a valuable and central member of this body. You are critical to its spiritual health. You are a treasure of wisdom, and we value you, and we look to you, and we will continue to sit at your feet and and absorb some of these lessons and learnings. Yes, in a youth-infatuated culture, we've lost sight of the vision of the 82-year-olds who have the right answer, and I think our discipleship's probably tied into some of that. Could it be that where our discipleship has gotten off track as we just kind of got everybody together, all the the 20-somethings just get together, it's like we probably need to insert something into that, just saying. And I enjoy hanging out with those who have a little different perspective. The family of selves has kind of gotten sorted out. And in Jesus' life, yes, even Jesus, the Son of God, at His own baptism, Right? Think about this now in Matthew chapter 3. Follow me here. Jesus came to Galilee, to the Jordan, to be baptized by John. That's John the Baptist. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? Now, put yourself in John's shoes, right? What would you say? (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one. He's coming. He's saying, hey, I need you to baptize me. Now you're thinking, wait a minute here. In his head, John's probably going like, "Okay, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit." He's probably going with Jesus, like, "What? Uh, in the name of the Father and you and the Holy Spirit? Like, what do you do? Like, you see, feel John, right? What are you going to do?" John's like, "Hey, hey!" hey. But Jesus, now Jesus is connecting some dots back to some Old Testament prophecies and such. Jesus replied, "Let it be so." It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I think it was a modeling of Jesus' humanity for us. So John consented. Imagine so. Didn't have a lot of choice right there. I love that statement. John consented. What are you going to say? No? Oh, the Bible's amazing. Verse 16, as as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Those of you who were baptized last week, that's you right there. Now, we might not have had doves like going above like that, but there was, there was some stuff going on up here by the tank. Those of you around the tank, you felt it. You saw it, Right? There were some things that were just dying under the waters, and there was some stuff that was lighting on you, and it was the Spirit of God being poured out on you and affirming you and coming to you, and you were receiving a confirmation of an identity that's grounded from heaven, that you're my son, you're my daughter, I see you, I know you, I love you, I'm for you, you're my child, that right there. That's identity that's received from heaven. If it happened for Jesus, pretty good chance it's probably going to happen for all of us, right? That we got to get this sorted out. And so I unpacked in your notes there kind of a, what I think out of this passage is like the four-pronged identity from heaven that I'm calling identity integrity. Identity integrity from heaven is rooted in this. The first one is that God knows me. Notice this is my son. Do you see that? God knows me. Do you believe that God knows you? He knows you. He knows the truest and deepest you. Do you believe that? Do you believe he knows you better than you know yourself? He knows all the parts in here of you that you've long since closed off to everyone else. Do you know the one you haven't closed it off to is the author Psalm 139 says, who knit you together in your mother's womb that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. I know you. I know the truest and deepest you. I have formed you. I know the you I had in mind when I knit you together. I know the you I had in mind when I sent Jesus to the cross. That fully redeemed, fully alive, leaning into the true self that's hidden with Christ and God. He knows it. Do you believe that? He knows you at that deepest level. And out of that knowing, he loves you. That God knows you. And from that place of knowing, are you kidding me? The songs we were singing this morning with a furious love, with a relentless love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God's face is turned towards you in love? Do you believe that? It's true. He loves you with a relentless love. Like, do you realize He's loved you all along the way when you had your back turned on Him, when you weren't interested in dialoguing with Him? Do you realize when you gave all the spiritual heisman whatever to him, do you realize he continued to love you and to pursue you and to have his face turned towards you? This is that Luke 15 picture, right, with the prodigal son. When we're off in a distant country, when we're doing life on our own and we're falling on our face time and time again, where's the father? The father's hiked up his robe, sprinting towards the son. As soon as the son turned back towards home, do you see that? That's God's love for you. He knows you with a depth of intricacy about those places in here that maybe no one knows, including you. He knows you, and in that place, He loves you. Do you believe that? God knows me. God loves me. The third prong is God is for me. Do you believe God is for you? I love there's a line in the Jewish writing, the Talmud. It says this, says, every blade of grass has an angel bending over it, whispering, grow, grow. I love that. Do you believe that heaven is leaning over the rails, looking at your life and whispering to you, grow, grow. It's true. God's not out to punish you, to destroy you. God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. He wants to grow you. He wants to develop you. He is for you. He's at work with your best in mind. Do you believe that? God is at work with your best in mind always. Bent over the blade of grass of your life saying, grow. And it's all embodied with these six words. I am a child of God. Those six words have the capacity to change the trajectory of anyone's life. That God knows me, God loves me, God is for me, I am a child of God. That's true for anyone in Jesus. And just feel, do you feel kind of the centered, groundedness of that statement? Do you feel it on the inside right now? That if you just internalize this, I am a child of God. It doesn't mean necessarily that the circumstantial chaos around us changes. What does it mean? It means there is a density of presence in the middle of it through your identity in Him that the Bible would describe as peace in the midst of the chaos. Chaos. If you're trying to spend your life like managing the chaos to get it to align more to peace, that's probably gonna be an effort in futility. That's where someone in their 80s has long since learned, doesn't do any good to do that. We ought to get to work on this. Just ground yourself on this. God knows me, God loves me, God is for me, and I am his child. And there is a weightedness and a groundedness there that will sustain you in the midst of the chaos. No coincidence here that the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, it starts with this identity, integrity from heaven. This is what it means to receive our identity from heaven, from beyond us. Versus what the alternative is here, right? The alternative would be, I'm going to try to derive my identity from earth. Stay with me here. Right? The alternative would be, if I, if I don't go the Matthew 3 route and join Jesus in that, that God knows me, God loves me, God's for me, and I am His child, then you can go down the I'm going to try to derive it from earth. I'm going to try to extract out of, first thing I wrote in your note, I put performance. I am what I do. A whole lot of that going on, right? I'm going to define myself by what I do. I mean, in any social setting you walk into, when any small talk kind of gets going, right, there's always the conversation, where, what do you do? That's not bad. It's not bad. It kind of gets the talk going. Well, I'm a doctor. I'm a systems analyst. I'm a sales manager. I'm a plumber. I'm an electrician. What? It's fine. But that's not the sum total of who you are. Right? I like what, <laughs> I like what one German philosopher, he labeled... He labeled our culture. He calls us the achievement society. He calls modern Westerners entrepreneurs of themselves. That's the commentary that the East has on us. I think it's pretty accurate, right? And how ironic is it that being an entrepreneur of ourselves in a modern achievement society, that we have more at our disposal to accomplish and create and achieve than any generation before us simultaneously, the capacity for achievement goes like this, and mental illness and emotional distress goes like this. Isn't that ironic? In his writings, he described this, symptoms of depression, feelings of inferiority, insecurity, fear of failure are hallmarks of a late modern achievement society. That's a pretty accurate commentary right there on the air we're breathing. Symptoms of depression, feelings of inferiority, insecurity, fear of failure, hallmarks of late modern achievement society. Rooted in this, you're trying to extract from what you do who you are. Now, here's the challenge. If you do that, if you go the performance route, I am what I do, what happens when you can't do what you do? What happens when you can't do that anymore? What happens when your job changes, when your career ends? Do you see why retirement then, if you spent 30, 40, 50 years putting, pretty much putting a performance, I am what I do on my identity, do you realize that retirement creates this vacuum inside of you, which is why often folks in retirement who've tethered themselves to their identity and what they do, they don't know who they are. They struggle with depression. They can't transition out of that world. Are you tracking with me? Because it's grounded on the things of earth that can be removed. It may not be, maybe it's not performance for you, maybe it's possessions for you. If it's not, I am what I do, maybe it's possessions, I am what I have. The treadmill for the possessions program goes like this, work more, buy more, repeat. That's how that goes, right? Where there's just this constant barrage of new, more, better, different. The whole North American marketing infrastructure is set up to get us to jump on that treadmill and try to extract out of what we have a deeper rooted identity where I put like materialism has become a kind of religion, Amazon has become a kind of temple, and shopping has become a form of worship. That's this. The point of this one is things to some aren't just things, they're an identity statement. And that's dangerous, dangerous ground, whether it's performance, what I do, possessions, what I have, maybe it's popularity. I am what others say about me. See, somewhere along the way, we don't ever graduate from the high school cafeteria. We just walk into whatever social setting or at a church gathering and all that, and we tend to be fairly preoccupied with what everyone else is thinking of us. And it's it's a really unsettling way to live. There's not a lot of peace in that. Where you're preoccupied with what everyone else's view of you is. And then there's the comparison trap that's just put on steroids with the social media generation, right? Where we want to play king of the hill. Where we're going to be like, the, you know, we're going to think we're going to be the, the coolest whatever. And you realize as you try to portray, right, there's this persona. You try to put like an airbrush propped like kind of cardboard cutout of who you are, right? There's even apps that do that, Right? That this is the airbrushed life that I want to claim to have, but there's a gap between the two person that you are. And in that gap between your persona and your person, there's no peace. It's a, it's a destructive way to live, and it's just this cycle that we're in that you want to be the coolest whatever. And if you're like me, there's, I mean, I'm not cool at anything. And you're always going to find someone who's cooler at this and that, who, right, who has a nicer house or, or better kids or a better career or takes nicer vacations, six-pack abs, whatever it is, you just get in this treadmill where it's just... So whether it's, I'm going to try, you're trying to extract, do you see it? We could keep going, right? You could, you could add from performance to possessions to popularity, right? What, what happens in the popularity if you're on that? What happens... What happens when you put on a few pounds? What happens when you lose whatever cool factor you had? What happens when you're not the center of attention anymore? What happens? You don't know who you are. It's a vicious cycle. So from performance, I am what I do, to possessions, I am what I have, to popularity, I am what others think about me. We could keep going, right? We could say pleasures, I am what I want. And this is where the confusion about the sexuality dialogue in our culture is rooted right here. We're as important as your sexuality is, hear this: It's not a large enough container for the full definition of who you are. Your sexuality is a critical part of who you are, but it can't encapsulate the deepest longings of your soul. You are more than that. Or I am what I know. What do you just keep going? You fill out your own. The grid. Are you tracking with me? This is the in the words of Jesus. If you choose to go deriving an identity from earth through popularity or possessions or performance or pleasure or whatever you want, if you go that route, in the words of Jesus, Matthew 7, it's like building your life on the shifting sand. It just, it can be taken away like that. What I'm calling identity insecurity when you try to extract it from earth what can only be received identity security from heaven i like what david benner he wrote a great book by the way on discovering who you are it's a great little great little read <laughs> i put this quote in your notes in all creation identity is a challenge only for humans <laughs> follow this now a tulip knows exactly what it is it's never tempted by false ways of being so it is with dogs rocks, trees, stars, amoebas, electrons, and all other things, all give glory to God by being exactly what they are. Follow this now. Humans, however, encounter a more challenging existence. We think, we consider options, we decide, we act, we doubt. Now, look at this sentence. Simply being is tremendously difficult to achieve, and fully authentic being is extremely rare. Wow. Anybody found that to be true? Whew. Can you just can you just imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to live an hour, your fully authentic self? What would that be like? You just feel that for a minute? Do you just let the cardboard cut out? You let the persona, you step off the treadmill of Performance, I am what I do. And possessions, I am what I have. and Popularity, I am what others think. You just step off all of that. And you say, you know what? I'm just going to enter in to this posture of receiving what God says is true about me. It's always wise to start with what God says. And what does God say? God says, I know you, God knows you, I love you, God loves you, I'm for you, God is always at work with your best in mind, He's bending over the blade of grass of your life, just whispering, go, grow, you are a child of God, what it'll be like to live into that? More fully and authentically and transparently. Wouldn't that be amazing? What would it be like to parent from that place? Wow. What would it be like to pastor from that place? What would it be like to lead in your work setting? What would it be like to coach your sports teams? What would it be it like to simply be at peace with yourself and with God? Wouldn't that be amazing? That you're not the cumulative effect of whatever your past says you are, whatever mistakes, good or bad, whatever others in your life have said you are. Some of you have been on the tremendous end of massive amounts of evil and darkness. Do you realize that that doesn't get the last word? That's not who you are. That abuse is not who you are. That addiction is not who you are. That those are very important realities you've experienced that have to be worked through, but that isn't the end. You are more than all of that. Are you following me here? Do you feel the do you feel the weight and the density that can come to the center of our lives if we lean in and live into our authentic true self? What Colossians 3 calls is hidden with Christ in God. The language of the Bible is your true self where you let your old self that's why Jesus said you can't come and experience any of this unless you start with this first step you've got to loosen the grip you've got to relinquish you've got to die what has to go underground and die a whole family of many selves in here needs to die so that the true self can rise forward in who he's called and created you and me to be so this is our first step on the road labeled who am i i want you to relax and settle in to a 6 week journey okay we're not going to get all this accomplished in one 35 to 40 minute message this morning we're just we're just at step 1 here and if we can just move the needle a little bit this week on this point right can we just take some i put in your notes i put in your notes here Right, kind of the action items from this week. They flow out of. I'm not going to read the passage in John 1. Worship team, why don't you come on up? Um, I'm not going to read the passage in John 1. I'm going to leave it for you. It's John the Baptist's identity. John the Baptist, (laughs) the same John who baptized Jesus in John 1. Everyone around comes to John and says, "Hey, who who are you?" They ask him three times, "Who are you? Who are you?" Because they think he's the Messiah. He says, "I'm not the Messiah." They think he's like Elijah. He says, "I'm not. I'm not. I'm not Elijah." So he thinks he's some prophet from Deuteronomy 18. I'm not the prophet. Three I am nots to one I am. That's a pretty good ratio for all of us, I think. You with me? I think this week, so here's the exercise this week. I put in put in your notes. I'd like you to spend some time reflecting on your own personal I am not statements. I put a few in your notes there for you, but if that isn't where you resonate, you've got your own I am not what? Finish the sentence. What are those things that are trying to be defining realities in your life that are really honestly extracted from earth that Jesus would say is built on shifting sand? That I am not. I am not my disappointments. I am not my abuse. I am not my divorce. I am not my possessions. I am not my performance. I am not those things. I'm not what I have. I'm not what I do. I'm not what others say about me. I'm not my desires and my feelings, all that. I am not that. I am more than that. You with me? But I think we've got to spend some time really drilling in and you might need some sacred friends, companions around you to help with that. But dig into the I am not statements and then I'd like you each day this week, would you somewhere in the course of the day, preferably maybe as you're drifting off to bed, as you're putting your head on your pillow at night, could we just collectively work this muscle this week of just this statement, I put it in your notes, to end each day with this, God knows me. God loves me, God is for me, I am a child of God. Just live into that this week. Can we do that? And then make a commitment to come back next week. Because next week we're gonna take the second step on this road with Jesus, and here's what we're gonna learn next week. Jesus is gonna invite us to begin to see ourselves as God sees us in him. Like how God sees us in Jesus, that the things that are true of Jesus are true of us. How crazy is that? And that's going to be massive implications for identity. So make a commitment to stay in the trenches with us as we walk this out. Can we do that together? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that you didn't leave us scurrying about in this world wondering who in the world am I? Thank you that at your baptisms, when the heavens parted and the voice from heaven came, man, we need a lot of that this week, Lord. We need the heavens to open up and we need your voice to lift up and say, this is who you are. You are a child of the Most High God. Help us live into that and find our true self in that, in Jesus' name.